Well, you know, there's a handful of uh, passages in the Bible, probably more than a handful, many actually, that, you know, when you slow down and you really read them, and, and you, you take the time to say, what is this saying? <laughs> what, what's the actual point this is getting across? Um, they kind of do a number on you. There's a number of times where if you're really honest and you read the Bible with that kind of, that heart that says, okay, God, I really want to be changed by you. And this should be happening every day, but from time to time it happens in a, a, a bit more powerful way. Um, this is one of those passages today where if we're willing, God, God might just kind of change some stuff in our heart. As I've been preparing for this all week, I've just been mulling over this passage, and I have to be honest, I, I started this week trying to write this sermon not quite knowing what to write. Uh, I didn't have some preconceived notion of what needed to be said about this passage, and frankly, the more I got into it, the more I realized I don't know if I actually have the words to preach this sermon. Um, it's done a number on me all week, and I pray and have been praying that somehow through my mumbling, uh, you may allow the text to do a number on you as well. This is one of those passages. So if you will, open up to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read to us from verse 20 all the way through verse 26. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The word of the Lord. Now, as we consider this text, we initially see that Jesus has flipped on its edge all expectations, pretty much anybody would have about what a blessed life is, what a happy life is, what a normal good life is. Um, he's, and, and he's done that by matching not only these blessings, these beatitudes, where there's four beatitudes in, in the Luke version of this story, but each one is matched to its corresponding woe on the other side. So, blessed are you who are poor is matched with woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry is matched with woe to you who are full. Blessed are you who weep matched with woe to you who laugh. And of course, blessed are those are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you is matched with woe to you when all people speak well of you. It's this kind of four to four match of blessings to woes. And, and when you first read it, this sounds absolutely counterintuitive. And, and the tendency that we might have is, is to read this and if we were just gonna be zealous for Jesus, if we were gonna say we wanna take the word of God and implement it, a passage like this almost makes you rethink all of life, doesn't it? Woe to you who are poor, woe to you who mourn, is the expectation that I need to take a vow of poverty, that I need to somehow become an ascetic and, and, and rid myself of all material possessions and just enter into a state of constant mourning. At face value, there's some element of pushing on that resistance to that idea inside of us. 
And yet, I think it would be a mistake to walk away from here thinking that's what Jesus is calling us to. The problem is made even more difficult with this passage because Luke and Matthew um, tell this sermon from Jesus in slightly different ways. Matthew's corresponding part to this message is in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount with my kids right now in our morning devotions, and every week I ask them, how many Beatitudes are there in the Sermon on the Mount? And they say, there's eight Beatitudes. I'm just training them. There's eight Beatitudes in Matthew, not just four. But his telling of this is slightly different. Where Luke says, blessed are you who are poor, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Luke says, blessed are you, blessed are you uh, when you are hungry. Now, or blessed are, blessed are you who are hungry now. Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, those are two different things. Now, maybe they mean the exact same thing. Uh, maybe what's probably happening here is that Jesus, as traveling preachers often do, recycles sermons. He uses a lot of the same material in different contexts, and yet he adapts the message he's giving to the different people that he's preaching to. I do that when I take a message like this to a different group. If I was going to preach this at a college gathering, perhaps, I might adjust this particularly to my audience in a different way. And so this is probably two slightly different sermons, but using some of the same core material But when you read Matthew, it feels like you can spiritualize away some of the hard edges of what Luke is saying. But I don't know if Luke allows us to do that. Luke says, blessed are the poor, and woe to you who are rich. I want to be very careful that I don't over-spiritualize this and suddenly make it easy to just say, yes, I'm good. I understand this passage, and I can just kind of wash it away, and I'm good as I am. If we get what Jesus is saying, I think we have to be changed leaving this room. And so I want to try to draw three principles from this, three lessons that have ministered to me this week. And the first one is what I call the lesson of comfort. The lesson of comfort. At at a very baseline, Jesus is giving comfort to his disciples, isn't he? You know, he's looking at his disciples and he's still ministering to them in the flesh, but he knows what's coming. He, he, he's spoken regularly about the persecution that is going to come on those who are going to follow him, the hardships that they'll face. He knows what's coming to those. He loves his disciples, and he's comforting them beforehand. Now, this is very important. Uh, suffering is a theme that the Bible speaks on from cover to cover, and when Jesus is comforting them, he's comforting on these four categories of poverty, of hunger, of sadness, and of persecution. All things the disciples and and all of his disciples would face, especially in the early years. Many disciples of Jesus all around the globe today still face that on a day-to-day basis. Many of you will experience that in some degree, for sure, all four of those categories. Suffering is a theme that we see all through the scriptures, isn't it? In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Job, that deals directly with what we call the problem of suffering. What do we do with suffering and a good God? If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And and we have a whole book of the Bible, Job, to try to address that. And for any of you who have labored through Job, the the challenge with reading Job is, as as a human with our limited vision, you get to the end of Job, and there's something that doesn't answer the question for you. You read through Job, and he, you know, this guy suffers like no one who has ever suffered, except for Christ, he's suffered probably the most of anyone who's ever been born. 
He was a blameless man. He was, Job, in, in chapter 1, it says, there was a man in the land of Uz named Job who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning from evil. This was, a, this was, on the whole, he was a good man. It doesn't mean he was innocent, that he had never done anything wrong. It just meant he was an, a God-honoring man. He prayed for his kids regularly, and God let everything be taken from him. 35 chapters, you wrestle through this discussion with his friends, and then God finally shows up, and you want an answer to the why. You want to know, why did all this happen? What's the heart of God to let this happen? And God never gives it. God just says, I'm God. You're not. I've got much bigger wisdom and much bigger insight into how all this fits together. Job, enter your name there. You don't need to know the why of your suffering. What you need to know is I'm God, and you need to be good with that. That's the lesson of Job. The Bible deals with suffering from cover to cover. One of the great mistakes that Christians often make with each other is that oftentimes when we get into um, relationship and, and someone in the church is suffering, we are very quick to write off suffering as if it's some kind of mistake in the Christian life. Someone enters into a season where the suffering is just lingering and it's difficult, and, and we give kind of quick answers to people. Just have faith. Well, sure, just of course. The person's not going to lose. I don't think they're going to lose faith, but is that all we have to offer them? Or we say, just pray a little harder. All you got to do is just pray a little harder. Well, I've been praying, and things aren't getting better. And it's deeper than the words we say. I think what happens oftentimes is that Christians, we have this amazing God who ministers to us and it went to the cross for us. Christ loves us. And, and then somehow we let trickle in this version of the prosperity gospel, which says that God's not gonna let evil and bad things happen to you for too long. If you just pray hard enough and believe enough, God's gonna somehow miraculously take the problems away. And we kind of believe that. And then we read Job and we say, well, it doesn't always work that way, does it? God has a way for providing for his people and sometimes he answers miraculously. But, Christian, sometimes hardship lingers for a long time. And Jesus here, at the very minimal, if we can just say one thing that he's doing in this text, he's comforting those who are in long-term difficult circumstances. Poverty doesn't just go away like that. You know, someone strikes the lottery, sure. Some, but the vast majority of people who are in poverty, this is, this is a life. A good chunk of a life, of all the hardship of it. We think of the story that was just shared about Team World Vision and, and the hardship of carrying the water and the sickness that can come from having to bring your own water to your own, to your own birth and then the amount of women that die in unsanitary conditions when giving birth to a child. That, there's an expectation. We can't even see that as Westerners. We, we can't even imagine the expectation of what that does to a psyche and a mind and a heart. And at the very least, what we have to say is Jesus is not brushing aside suffering. He's not saying, look, when you feel like weeping, you don't need to weep. It's not that bad. You got heaven on the other side. Don't weep. No, he, but he's, he validates the weeping. He says, blessed are you when you weep. There is a bigger story. Creation, fall, redemption. That, that changes everything when you get that story in your mind. But it doesn't wash away the hardship. Blessed are you when you weep. And he, he doesn't say, don't feel the hunger pains. It's not real. It's, just, just believe more. No, 
when you're hungry, says Jesus. There's something about those hunger pains that makes you blessed. And so to you in this room who are suffering in one way or another right now, I want you to just think of how, what God's doing. Maybe it doesn't fit into these four categories all that neatly. It might not. But the reality is, is that life's pretty hard. Sin's real. And we live in a very complicated time in a very complicated city. And we have very complicated lives. Hear the comfort of Jesus. He's not wiping away your problems and hardship as if they don't exist or they're not real or you should just be better because you have faith in Jesus. No, that's not the situation. Believe. He sees you. He's ministering to you. And these words are meant for you. The second lesson, after the lesson of comfort, is the lesson of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Four blessings and four woes each say that something is going to happen to the person who's experiencing something in this life now. So, for example, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. That's met by woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Or the next one, but woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now, this comes most to the forefront, this idea of the already, not yet, this experience we're having now matched with what is yet to come. Again, you heard me say that the great storyline of Scripture is creation, fall, redemption, right? Our, our story is taking all of this into consideration. Things are not perfect. We have a, we have a story that we're, we're finding of how things are and why things are the way they are, and we have to see this through the lens of Scripture. But verse 22 and 23 bring this real clear for us. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. That's where verse 23 starts. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So here's our instructions. The moment that you're persecuted in any degree, the moment that someone slanders you for faith in Christ, in, in Christ, Right then and there, you can experience something in the present moment that's real and fills you with joy, fills you with something deeper than the moment, and yet you can know that your greatest reward is not simply that joy, but there's something even greater coming on the other side of heaven. There's the already, and then there's the not yet of what is still to come. And the Christian lives in that tension, don't they? That's our daily life. On the one hand, as Christians, there's so much that's already true. Christ has already gone to the cross for you. Jesus has already done away with your sins. Every single follower of Jesus, when you find yourself having some tempting thought or falling into sin once again, you look to the cross and you say, it's already been done away with. I am no longer who I was. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And already you are saints. Already you have everything. Already Christ is for you and can never be taken away from you. Romans 8.37-39 no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is yours now, the moment you put your faith in Jesus. And very often in this life, God, in a sense of justice, works out exactly what he's saying here in the already. Now, I'm not getting to the not yet yet, the not yet yet, <laughs> but very often it does work out this way. So, for example, 
Woe to you when all speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Isn't it the case that sometimes you see people who were very well spoken of but had hidden sins and they were hiding them and they have some big fall? I mean, we've seen that, if we're honest, even with Christian pastors, big-name evangelists, well-known people who have built entire ministries, and all along they've been abusive or they've been some kind of, you know, misconduct behind the scenes. Everyone's praising their name. Everyone, this is a person to follow. And then eventually God says, no, no. Your sins are going to be blown from the rooftop. Everyone's going to know exactly what you did. That's exactly the story of David. Nathan came to David and said, everything you've done in private is going to be blown from the rooftop. And it was only when it was blown from the rooftop that David finally says, I repent. Sometimes God has an interesting way of getting a hold of us. So there is an already sense that sometimes God works out this cosmic sense of reorienting and, and comfort for the sufferer and woe to the person who is above everybody else and high almighty on their own and he works out in this life, and yet there's another side in which the cosmic justice is not perfectly worked out until heaven. Because very often the evildoer does get away in this world, doesn't he? How many of you have had a story where someone's done an injustice to you, they've done something to you that only you know about? And it seems like there's no justice for it, and there probably will never be here in this world. And yet God stores it all up. He knows everything that's ever been done in, in secret. And, and he is working all things together in a way now that even though we can't see how his justice works, it will work out on that side. The scriptures say that there are many now who are celebrated, who are rich in the sense of having everything you could want in this world that in the next life will be the most bankrupt and full of poverty you could imagine because they'll be stuck in hell the place where there is no light, where there is no comfort. We know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had everything in this world. He had a poor man begging at his gates, and the rich man never did anything for him. After, after they both died, the rich man went to hell, the, and Lazarus, the servant, went to, went to heaven, where he was being comforted by Abraham himself. And what does the rich man do? This is so interesting. In that story, the rich man suffering in hell. You know what he's doing in hell? He's still trying to command Lazarus as his servant. He's in hell. He's got no water. He's, he's parched. And he says, send Lazarus to get me water. Do you see how the, this, the woes of the second part of this passage are bringing condemnation to the person who believes that they are outside of God. They believe that they are a God unto themselves. Maybe they wouldn't use that language, but they're rich they're full, they're laughing, they have everything everyone says they should have, but in reality, God says they're bankrupt because they don't have God, they're seeing incorrectly, and their future is punishment, is utter poverty. Now, I want to let you know right now, and before I move on to the third point, which is the most important, I want to plead with you. If that's you in this room right now, if you've never accepted Christ, I, want, I don't want to skip over the hard, you know, sharp edges of these verses. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and you haven't submitted to his authority, the most consolation you're ever gonna get now or in eternity, you've already received. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. There is a hunger coming upon you over your soul that I wish upon nobody 
and you do not have to receive that hunger. You can trust in Christ, and he will forgive all of your sins, and you submit unto him, and he promises you all the comfort in this life and the next or those first four blessings. But if you don't receive Jesus, that is on your own head, and you are writing your own future. We see the lesson of the already not yet, the lesson of comfort, and then we see the lesson of poverty. Now, this one has stuck with me all week, and I I haven't quite known what to do with it, because what I want this passage to say is what Matthew said. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. But it doesn't. It says, blessed are you who are poor. Now, what is Jesus teaching us? Now, in order to answer that question, we've got to get into, we've got to get out of our 21st century mindset. We've got to enter into a first century mindset and understand poverty as it was in the first century. We have to understand hunger as it was in the first century. Try to understand what Jesus is getting after. We in our modern day, we tend to whitewash all of poverty. That's what we do. We, we look at those who are poor, and, and maybe that's you in this room. Maybe, maybe you would find yourself in, in poverty. And, and you oftentimes maybe have felt the judgment of many other people who are not in poverty kind of whitewashing over poverty as if there's one cause for it, one reality that people who are stuck in poverty experience. But the Bible provides a far more complex picture of poverty. In fact, it writes about this topic often. So there's kind of two big categories. There's more, but I break them down into two. Some people are in poverty, the Bible says, because they're lazy. That's one of the categories that the Bible speaks of. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And the person who's lazy because of poverty, or or in poverty because of laziness, because they refuse to work, the scripture says that's on them. In fact, in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 11, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I mean, the scripture draws really hard lines. If you're lazy and you don't want to go to work and that's the reason you're stuck in poverty, then you don't get to eat. New Testament, New Testament being very consistent with the Old Testament. Now, that's one layer. And if I can provide a bit of social commentary at this point, what I'd say is that that's oftentimes the only layer that many speak about poverty, and that is a very unbiblical thing to do, and it's very unwise as well. That is a layer, but the Bible is far more complex than that. There's another category which speaks about those who are in poverty because of circumstances that are beyond their control. This category comes up all through Scripture. Um, For example, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. In fact, one of the core identities of uh, the Jewish people under under the Old Covenant was their slavery, their poverty, their powerlessness. Ruth and Naomi were widows who were living off of Israeli welfare at the time. We can, we can list off tons and tons of stories all through the Bible where the, the, the causes for Naomi and Ruth's situation was the death of their husband in a famine. As we know, Ruth was a very hard worker. And, and, and when we speak about care for the poor, this is one of those topics that... Um, This is the rich legacy of social concern of Christianity, is that Christians love caring for the poor. And on our best days, the modern church is beautiful at doing this. We step in. We are amazing. And on our worst days, we turn a blind eye. And and, and we have to learn something today. 
This is a rich legacy of Christianity. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he met with the council of Jerusalem, he tells all the instructions that Jerusalem gave him. Then in Galatians 2.10, he says, only the apostles asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul's going out, planting churches around the Mediterranean, busy guy. He's got to preach the gospel. But what's, the, what's like the first thing on his mind wherever he goes? I want to make sure I remember the poor. Now, there's three kind of, not values, but three ideas that are very connected to poverty in a biblical worldview. And if we're going to understand this, we've got to understand all three values. The first one is vulnerability. The poor are very vulnerable. Those in poverty experience disaster and injustice in a way that those who have means and have wealth simply don't. They're not as vulnerable to things like natural disasters and injustices as those who are poor. So Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23. Interesting verse. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Huh. So the ground that the poor has, it would make much food. There they are. They're working the same food as this guy over here. But the reason they don't create any wealth for themselves is not because they're not planting on rich soil. It's because of injustice. This is Proverbs 13, 23. Now, sometimes, according to Proverbs, it's not because of laziness. It has nothing to do with lack of IQ or lack of natural talent or lack of some of the minimal resources to begin making wealth for themselves. The issue is that the poor are more easily exploitable for many reasons. We know this. We look at history. One of the common things we see even in Scripture is that judges can be bought. All through history, judges are bought. A rich man goes to the boundaries where his land and the poor guy next to him, and there's a marker, and he moves the marker just over this way to extend his property line and, 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 and impede on the poor man's property line. The poor man and the rich guy go to a, go to a court, and the rich man gives 100 bucks to the judge, and the judge orders in favor of the rich man. What's he going to do about it? He doesn't have the money to pay off the judge. Now, this is, a, 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 this is an age-old tale that's talked about all through Scripture. Proverbs talks about it. The great prophet Amos speaks about this situation more than any other prophet in the Old Testament in terms of amount per how many words he wrote. Amos 2.7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father, they go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. He talks about the way they trample the poor and the way incest is happening in the same breath, says the, 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 the prophet Amos. It's just, there's a sin sickness that causes an, a vulnerability that the poor experience. Now, why am I talking about this right now? I want to get into the mind of what Jesus is speaking about when he says, blessed are you who are poor. The poor experience vulnerability in a very particular way. Number two, they experience powerlessness, powerlessness, vulnerability and powerlessness. Proverbs 10, verse 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. What a strange verse. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. So that's saying, essentially, that when you have money, it's easy to make money. But when you don't have money, it's very difficult to get out of that circumstance. I think that's actually pretty basic economics at this point. Isn't that true? You know, you only have to look to the game of Monopoly to know this. When you're up and you've got a couple houses built and you have a good chunk of money and someone else, someone else to you doesn't have any property and they don't have any money, this guy over here is just hoping, I hope I roll a five. I hope I roll a five. <laughs> He's got a one in 12 shot. You over here, you're saying, as long as I don't roll a seven, I'm good. 
as long as, what are the chances? Well, the odds are way in your favor. Now let's make this more real than the game of Monopoly. Let me give you a hard-hitting example. Years ago, I volunteered in an after-school uh, tutoring, not after school, it was in-school tutoring program uh, through GRIP, one of our partner ministries in the city, and uh, working with young kids who were in gangs. Most, almost all of them were in gangs. And, you know, I, I came into this situation with all kinds of, um, you know, suburb boy mentality understanding about what gangs were and why people would join gangs and all that kind of thing. And uh, certainly uh, every person is responsible for their own sin. In no way is what I'm going to say justifying anyone's sinful behavior. But, you know, I, I got into uh, this story and began to befriend and try to work with some of these kids who were in gangs. And I was learning all types of situations about their, their stories about their situations and why they were cho- choosing to be in the gangs. And imagine for a moment being a, a young kid, single-parent household in Chicago. Mom's working two, three jobs. She's barely home. You're living in a dangerous neighborhood. It's difficult to walk to school in the morning because you have to cross certain lines. But you do it because you got to get to class. Sometimes you don't do it, so you start racking up missing days. This happened very often. 21, 22, 23 days missing, about to get expelled. Why? Well, they can't get to school. It's a sense of powerlessness. I can't get out of this. Well, what can you do? Well, there's a group of guys who will be your best friends. They'll protect you. They'll give you family. They'll give you friendship. They'll give you power. You got to do a couple of legal things along the way. It's called a gang. But if you join, you can walk to school. Hmm. That changes the narrative. And once again, it doesn't justify sin. But when you're getting into an eight-year-old boy's brain, suddenly Proverbs 10:15 begins to mean something different. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Powerlessness. There are certain pressures that poverty puts on a life that are direct consequences of the poverty itself. And this can make a person feel powerless and vulnerable. Third, hopelessness. Hopelessness. A third aspect of poverty. Proverbs 14.20, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. You know, it's, this is one of those things, again, one of the reasons I've been convicted all week is because I have sensed in my own heart the way I speak about these issues being not as complex and dynamic as what the Bible is. I just want to confess to you. I, I've, I've been seeing in myself uh, a, a flattening of issues that the Bible has a really nuanced way of speaking about. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Now, this is a, there's a vein of sin that comes up in all of us that has preferential treatment for those who have something, whether it's wealth or power or prestige or name. If you were to walk into a room and there was someone with prestige, wealth, or a name and someone who had none of those things, there's something about the magnetism of that person that we tend to veer this way when you go into the room. And what that is is it's preferential treatment. If we're honest, it comes up in all of us. And if we're honest, sometimes the problems of the poor can seem so overwhelming. When you look at a city like Chicago, you look at something like the immigration crisis that's going on across our nation and, and, and just increased challenges with all of that. And we can talk politics and, and how we fix that. That's a very good topic. Christians should speak into that. We need good counsel on that. 
But here they are. We got a lot of people here with a lot of problems. And sometimes what Christians can do is they can see all the, all the challenges with poverty in their midst, and they can say, I just can't do it. There's some program somewhere that will fix that. Again, my mind goes back to the time serving with the high school students, and it was around Christmas, and uh, everyone was getting in fist fights in the school. You know, when I grew up, there was a fist fight or two a year in the school I went to. And, and usually it was like, like wow. Like the, to me, it was like the world was ending, like a fist fight in school. These kids, there were, during every passing period, there was a fist fight happening around Christmas time. I said, what's going on? And the teacher said, oh, it's Christmas. I said, yes, and what does that have to do with the fights? And they said, well, a lot of these kids, uh, th this is a whole different season for them because they're seeing a bombardment of commercials that are celebrating happy whole families with lots of presents under the Christmas tree, and they know that's not their story, and it, it makes all kinds of feelings come out in them that as young kids, they don't know how to get, how to get that out of them other than fighting. Powerlessness. So let's review. There's these three aspects of poverty that the Bible speaks about, at least. There's more, but let's just say these three. And uh, they have something to teach us today. Vulnerability, hopelessness, and powerlessness are, are things that are associated with those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are weeping, those who are being persecuted. These are the kinds of values that Jesus is speaking into. And then Jesus steps in to a person who knows those things, who doesn't need to be told those things, who doesn't need to be instructed on those things, who knows them. And he, he says to the, the, them, blessed are you who are poor, who experience vulnerability, hopelessness, and powerlessness. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? Well, the kingdom of God is the kingdom where whatever your background is, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever everyone else said about you, the kingdom of God is the place where you're so fully known and so fully loved that you could not imagine being loved any more than you are. That, the kingdom of God is where when you're loved by God and he bestows upon you the riches of heaven, all that Jesus earned, all that is rightfully his, he bestows on, on you who have faith in Christ and you come into the kingdom of God and it's all yours with no lack there's no lack in the kingdom of God. There's no vulnerability because you're protected by the king. There's no hopelessness because it's guaranteed everything you could ever have. And there's no powerlessness because the power of the Holy Spirit's at work inside of you. When you experience poverty, if you're in Christ, when, then the kingdom of God is yours, says Jesus. But no man can enter that kingdom until he accepts his own utter poverty. Now we're moving somewhere very important. If you want the kingdom of God, you have to accept your own utter poverty. This is a reversal of everything the world teaches a person. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are so overwhelmingly full of sin that even our greatest deeds are like filthy rags when viewed before a holy God. Even our best good deeds, when we went out and volunteered and tried to give our best and did the right thing, even those, when they were done outside of Christ, 
They were, they were so filled with false motivations, wanting to be seen as a good doer, want to be, wanting to earn some kind of credit with God even. If I do a good deed over here, well, then God will owe me something over here so I can stack up my brownie points with God by doing a good deed here. And if I do it in private, that's double brownie points. But God sings so I get extra credit with him. Do you see the filth of the human heart and what we do? God says that all of our deeds, even the best of them, are so filled with the wrong motivations that they're like filthy rags before him. And what we need to do is we need to not only as Christians know that's true, but experience poverty as a result. Ready for this? Vulnerability. Outside of Christ, you are the most vulnerable person that could ever live. You, no matter how many fences you put up, no matter how much money you accumulate, your vulnerability in this world, you might not see it, but you are exposing yourself to every risk imaginable because, because one day you will die and you will face a holy God. It's going to happen. Every one of us are going to face that day. And as it stands right now, you're as vulnerable as it could be. And hopelessness. On that day, you have no hope if you're outside of Christ. Why? Because you don't know what's going to come to you, but the Bible says you should know. And it's not a place you ever want to be. You're utterly hopeless. Without, a, without, hope, without any hope of maybe I'll get out of it, God says, no, it's eternal. It's the place of utter hopelessness and powerlessness. No man can come to the kingdom of God until you confess your powerlessness that even if I tried, I couldn't get out of this situation. I'm stuck if I gave all my might and all my effort and all everything I had and all my zeal, I couldn't get out of my hopeless situation if I tried. That's true poverty of the soul, and it's the gateway to Christianity. And there are many self-proclaimed Christians within modern evangelicalism today that have never confessed any of that. They've taken on the title Christian, but they are hypocrites because they don't know poverty of the soul. And Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. And I think there's two meanings here. He's bringing comfort to those who are truly poor, and he's speaking a truth to the soul that until you know your hopelessness, your vulnerability, and your powerlessness to rescue yourself, you cannot get anything from God. You're utterly cut off. Jesus says, if you are truly poor in your soul, if you know your poverty, I'll give you the kingdom. Now, how does Christ give us the kingdom? Well, he does this in the most remarkable of ways. We can never write this story. The very God to whom we have rebelled, the very God to whom we have put our fist up and gone our own way, that God entered our story and became poor on our behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ, the second person in the Trinity, God, who had all things at his disposal, enters into the human story and takes on not just becoming poor, but takes on poverty, vulnerability. He was crucified naked on a cross, stripped of everything he had, powerlessness. That is the point of crucifixion. You can't even lift your arm to scratch your forehead as you die because it's pinned to a cross. You have no power. How did Christ rescue you? He took on total poverty and hopelessness. 
Now, did Christ ever lose fact, sight of the fact that he knew ultimately who he was? No. But there was a moment on the cross that is beyond the human mind to understand where Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting from the Old Testament when he does this. And what exactly is happening here, we don't know particularly, but we do know this, the sins of the world were put on his back and God looked down on the sins that were on the, on the sun and, and God in some way turned his face away. And in that moment, Christ experienced an absence, a hopelessness. How did Christ rescue you? By taking on full poverty. And here's what's interesting. You know what the most blessed moment in the Bible is, according to this passage? It's Christ on the cross. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is really interesting. Think of all the images in the world that you could, you could come up with your mind of what's the blessed life? What's the blessed life? What, what's, what's the good life? What am I aiming for? Everyone's after the good life. Try to just imagine the image. We're going to be bombarded with commercials in about five hours for the blessed life. And the Bible says that the only image you need to look for is Christ on the cross. That's the blessed life. Do we even, can we even begin to fathom that? Can you? I don't know if I can. What did he have? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Remember when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Remember in the days leading up to the, the cross, as he wept in the garden of Gethsemane so hard that the capillaries on his forehead burst into blood which can only happen under extreme duress. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, because they mocked him on the cross. Ah, you who said you could destroy and rebuild the temple in three days, get yourself off the cross. The blessed life. Some kind of reorientation is needed in my own heart, and I don't quite know what to do with it. I, I think... Uh, there is something God's done in my heart. I just want to share with you. I'm going to let you do with this what you want to do with it, but here's what God's doing in my heart. There's some kind of orientation towards the poor that's been missing in my life. And I'm a pastor. This is stuff I'm engaged with. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to be in, and get ministries going. And, but there's something about this movement towards the hurting and the poor and the vulnerable and the hopeless which is a hallmark of Christianity, which cannot be removed from Christianity, that is too easy to assign to other people to do. And I have a feeling the closer I get to it, the more I will experience the blessed life that I really want. And I want to invite you into that with me. I wonder what blessings the poor and the persecuted have to teach a church like ours. I wonder if our obsession with stuff is doing more harm to our walk with God than we realize. I wonder if finding more margin in our life to be with the vulnerable and the hurting and the marginalized might not be the very thing the church needs to move back towards authentic Christianity. I wonder how often we still see the world through a secular lens. And really in our heart of hearts, 
admire those who have much and laugh much as if they are the ones with the blessings. And I wonder if we would weep more if we spent a bit more time reflecting on our own depravity and the depravity of the world around us. I began by sharing that this passage has done a number on me and uh, I don't think I've been able to put into words what it's been doing to me this week. But I hope, I hope that there's a bit of reflection that might come for us as a church as a whole. I think God wants to do something good and I think Jesus' teachings are still as powerful as they were 2,000 years ago and able to change us for the better. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you and uh, we want to take your words very, very seriously. I don't know what to do with everything I've, I've read this week. Um, and even in my heart, Lord, I, I just sense like every time I, I turn to another angle in my heart, I sense uh, some other, you know, reason coming in my mind to justify something or something like that. And, and those reasons are good, God, but I, I still can't get away from your words. And so I, I just lay that before you. I want to I be a church father that honors your words and that uh, lives radically and boldly for Christ and lives really compelling and salty lives in the midst of a watching world. I think this is a hallmark of Christianity, Christ, and, and you taught it to us. The Apostle Paul demonstrated it for us, and we want to do it well. And so thank you, God, for this church that oftentimes does do that very well. Thank you for being a church that, that moves towards the hurting very well. I've seen that. Multiply that ministry, Lord. Fan it into flames. And God, I also just pray a prayer of comfort right now for those in the room right now that, um, that just know these things um, in personal ways, maybe more than others do. God, I pray that you'd minister to them. I pray that they'd experience the blessing of Christ. I pray that you'd comfort them today and give them the fullness of the hope that is in Christ alone. This world might take many things away from us, but if you have Christ, you actually have more than you could ever imagine. Heaven is your inheritance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.